Salam and welcome to another TMV podcast brought to you by the Muslim Vibe. As always, I'm your host Salim Qasim. I should probably start by apologizing. We've had, well, I, I took a little bit of a break to be honest from um, producing and 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 just recording these, but we are now back. Um, and our first episode uh, of the, I guess, new season, if you can call it that, is is actually a, a really really great one. We were joined by uh, Muhammad Faris, who is the founder of Productive Muslim, a brand that I'm sure many of you would have come across and heard of. Uh, Rukshana also joins me to, um, well, she co-produced, well, she pretty much produced the whole episode um, and co-presented it with me. And we're talking to him, I guess, about the philosophy that runs through the work that he does with Productive Muslim. Um, As you can tell from the title, it's kind of this uh, struggle between hustle culture, as he puts it, versus baraka culture. And we kind of explore that and what that means. Um, and it's a really fascinating conversation and, and, and uh, a, a framework and a mindset that I think, you know, more people need to and should embrace and move towards. Um, but I think you guys will really enjoy this conversation. Without further ado, here is our chat with Muhammad Faris from Productive Muslim. Salam, Muhammad. Wa alaykum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. It's a, it's a real pleasure. Um, I think by way of kind of background, um, like I said to you just beforehand, I, I, Productive Muslim is, is a brand that I at least have known for as long as I can remember. Um, and, and like I said to you, there was that iconic logo that you guys had. <laughs> and unfortunately for me, at least have moved away from with the, with the brother, with the, with the top. Abu of, Productive. <laughs> Abu Productive. Um, and, and, and even the colors as well. It was, it was quite a standout. And you guys have been, have been around for, for years. Um, but I think, at least for myself, I never quite fully knew what Productive Muslim was. Um, and, and also I think understanding the journey and, and to be honest, that's where I want to start, um, from yourself is if you're, if you're happy to share with us how Productive Muslim came to be, what your own experience was that led to its inception. Cause you've been uh, doing this for over 10 years now, I believe maybe yeah, I was 13, 14 years. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it's been a long, long time. And, and I know you've, you know, you've, you've written books and seminars, workshops, helped, I, I, you, can, you probably have a number, but you know, countless individuals with their productivity and their dean and everything else. So I think if we just start from the top and, and get a bit of an understanding of the background of things, um, that, will be, that will be quite helpful. So Bismillah, yeah. over to you. Yeah, it's like, again, it's one of, those, one of those things where you don't plan it and Allah plans it for you and you just follow the breadcrumbs as I, as I, as I say. Um, so it was 2007 when the first, you know, I was, I was, I was, I was at Bristol University in the UK, doing my master's, I had two jobs, I was working part-time as well. And I was overwhelmed. Honestly, I was just overwhelmed. I had so much things to do. And I felt like, gosh, like I'm a student and I'm struggling to manage my time, to manage my productivity. You know, how do these like top performers, top, you know, people who are like, you know, get, get everything under control. And that's when I stumbled on that science of productivity. And I was quite obsessed with it, this whole idea of, wow, you can actually increase your performance by changing some behaviors, changing some habits, changing your structure, routine. You can actually get more things done. And, you know, went on the whole, you know, GTD movement started, you know, was there on that time, beginning getting things done. David Allen, there was a lot of books about productivity, lifehacker.com, which started sharing softwares and gadgets you can have, which really boost your productivity. It is before smartphones came on as well. So there was a lot there that there was like, there was like a phase where almost like, 
tech and software and GTD can transform your life. And I was really obsessed with that. Um, at, at the same time, I was, you know, people started asking me questions like, hey, how, how, do you, how do you manage everything? How do you balance your time? And that's what I was like, oh, I could actually sort of start teaching this stuff or I can share what I'm learning. But it was one November morning, it was a cold November morning, 2007, where, the, again, it's where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala plans his ideas for you. The two words productive Muslim popped in my head when I woke up in that morning. And I don't know why. I've never thought of starting a blog. But all I remember is after praying Fajr, I came home and I just registered the domain name productivemuslim.com. And then first I got excited. Oh my God, it's going to be the muslimlifehacker.com, right? We can like share like tips and gadgets and softwares and all this tech. We can just ride this wave from a Muslim perspective. And I was really excited. I remember telling my, my flatmate, hey, let's do this. And he was like into gadgets. Like, oh, we'll share the best tools and gadgets. And then after a while though, I shut the website down. It's like, it's a stupid idea. Who's going to read this stuff? Uh, forget it, right? And six months passed and I didn't do anything. I graduated, uh, you know, realized the big bad world is waiting for me. And I graduated at the height of the financial crisis. Great time uh, to graduate with a, with a finance, and, with finance degree as well. And uh, two things happened. I think one is, I'll say this is, is a 10-year-old boy, which I credit. Literally, he emailed us and said, hey, uh, where's your blog? You know, you used to write really awesome articles. I'm like, wow, I have a true fan. You know, like I feel touched. Um, let me just like jump into that. But then the second idea, which kind of really shift this whole perspective was, there's a hadith for Rasulullah that said, there's barakah in my ummah in the early hours. And when I first came across that hadith, it kind of hit me like a brick wall because here I am, when I first started Productive Muslim, my idea, at least at that time, was to share the productivity science I was getting, importing from secular, from Western values, and just kind of share the Muslim world. Like, hey, here's how I can become more productive, and here's JTD, here's David Allen, and here's Lifehacker. What I didn't, what, the, what Hadith kind of, kind of struck me was, wait a second, what is it in our own faith? I mean, productivity in general, it's a good thing. What is in our own faith that talks about productivity? What is in our own, where in the Quran, where in the seerah, where in the sunnah that we can find these ways of living? And how much does it agree with the modern science of productivity? And how much does it disagree and challenge the modern notion of productivity? Mm. And it became this obsession, this question of how does spirituality link to peak performance? And that led to the sort of the years of journey so far, alhamdulillah. It's, it's really interesting. You, you talk about this looking for something that's quite contemporary and current in Islam. Um, and, and it reminds me, um, a couple of episodes ago on the podcast, we were talking about modern day spirituality. And, um, you know, these modern books, The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari, The Surrender Experiment. I always talk about these two specifically because they're the two that I've actually read. Um, so if people listening have heard the previous episodes and have heard these books mentioned time and time again, it's because it's the only ones I know. Um, but, you know, I, we, we looked at, the, oh, we, we talked about that. And, and again, I asked the question um, as to whether we have similar lessons and, and depth, I guess, in terms of in our faith and in our tradition, um, and, and so it's interesting to, that you went through the same journey looking at kind of very specifically productivity. Um, and, and I guess uh, for me, the question then is, what did you find? Was there anything, yeah. was there anything of note? Was there anything that kind of, I, I'm guessing so if it's been 13, 14 years <laughs> and, and the website's back up. Alhamdulillah. Yeah, it's interesting. Again, it was a couple of things, some things which I, there was two parts of this. One was kind of going on faith and looking at productivity from, a, from an Islamic worldview, right? Because you know, we talk about worldview or mental models. If you, think, you know, there are certain um, 
almost paradigms that we kind of see the world through. Um, if I was a mainstream productivity expert, my paradigm is I want to increase the economic value of the human being. I want to make sure that he squeezes as much stuff done, as much economic value from his time to get things done. And yes, we'll squeeze in life and work and family and everything else somewhere after that kind of thing. And that's kind of the, the traditional productivity science was all about wake up four o'clock in the morning so they can, you know, be get a head start and check your emails first. I'm like, <laughs> great. Um, so that's the whole, the whole drive about how do I squeeze the most of the human being for economic benefit and for basically for just to, you know, to get ahead in this hustle culture of life. When we look at Islamic perspective as well, Again, the purpose, if, if we start from the purpose of life, and the purpose of life is to be a abd, to be a slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And what does that mean in the context of being productive? It means, the way I define it is, being productive is about making smart choices with your energy, your focus, and your time, so that you can be the best abd of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala across all your roles, not just at work. So to be a slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as whether it's work, with your family, with your community. You know, it's like, how do you make those choices with your energy, focus, and time? The time you wake up, what you eat, how to focus, how to turn off your, when to turn off your phone, when to take a nap, exercise or not. All those smart choices you make throughout the day, energy, focus, and time, they translate in you being able to be that slave in the moment, slave of God, across your roles. Whether it's at work, whether it's with your family, with your spouse, with your children, and I think that holistic definition of productivity is what Islam actually offers to the world versus the kind of the hustle culture approach to productivity. We call it the baraka culture paradigm of productivity. So that's one major thing that I feel like, you know, we're adding to the science of productivity versus kind of just trying to translate what's out there. The so second I'm, thing, oh, sorry. Go ahead. yes, go ahead. I was going to say, just before we carry on, can you define exactly what you mean by hustle culture? Because I don't know if it's, uh, a cultural thing that is different across um, across the world because for me hustle means to proceed uh, and engage in something with great activity uh, with lots of enthusiasm and I'm quite a goal-driven person and it's not necessarily just about money or you know the kind of materialistic things but I, I appreciate there are other lots of definitions of hustle so for you what what does it actually mean? Yeah. Thank you. Good, great, great question. For me, hustle culture is an egocentric, personal-driven way of being, right? It's about me wanting to achieve my goals, and I'm going to be hustling to get those goals. Most of these goals are worldly goals as well, versus Baraka culture is a God-centric, purpose-impact-driven approach to productivity, and that is hereafter focus, about the long game, the very, very long game. So it's almost like we, most of us, including myself, we all grew up in hustle culture. The narrative was you got to hustle, work hard, get the job, get, you know, get, there's a hustle. And it's all about, think about it. It's all very egocentric. It's about me, myself, and I. It's about personal success drive. Look at my LinkedIn profile. Look at my, you know, accolades and awards. And it's about the material results, right? Now, again, nothing wrong with the material results, but, but for what purpose, the higher purpose versus what we're challenging. And, and there's a great article in the Atlantic that talks about study of workism where work has been, has replaced religion as the source of for people's identity, the source of people's feeling of transcendence for meaning and purpose. We have equated work to, to almost like we've made our work our God. And there's a great article, again, I recommend you watch it. Uh, there's a video actually on YouTube called Workism, how it's making uh, Americans really miserable across the world as well. 
where work has become that central piece of identity. Whenever we meet somebody, we don't ask him, who are you? What do you do? That's the first question we ask, right? So that, and so, so within that realm, within that, again, a paradigm, productivity is defined to kind of move that hustle culture forward, to move that workism religion forward, so to speak. There's, there's a lot of, you know, if you think about um, uh, commencement speeches, right? It's all about love what you do, do what you love, you know, go out there, hustle, you know, and, and just achieve these, these, these accolades of success, which is fine. But again, within the wider context of who we are, yeah. what we do, our purpose in life, and where we're heading ultimately, that's what shift needs to happen. Where it's like, I'm not saying don't work hard. You got to hustle in both Baraka and, you know, if you think hustle but work hard, you have to work hard. But the paradigm is what we're talking but, about. But this is, I guess this also comes back to the fact that as to how we define success. Um, and, and, and in a, as you say, in like a consumerist, uh, worldly society, success is always defined by the, the job that you have, the car that you drive, the status that you hold in society. Whereas, you know, whenever someone tells you it doesn't matter what you do in life, so long as you're a good person, that's always seen as like this kind of hippie, airy, fairy type approach to life. Whereas, as you say, and again, it's really interesting, these two buzzwords of egocentric versus God-centric. It's a theme that we've had um, on, on this podcast many, many times before, even from the lens of um, psychology. So looking at kind of um, Western psychology, and and how that resonates and how that relates with like an islamic perspective whereas you know from a muslim perspective it's always about anchoring ourselves to allah and and allah being at the center of things and we have to kind of realign ourselves there whereas often the perspective from a from a western culture is that no i i am everything and everything has to revolve around me um so it, it's again it's fascinating to hear you use the same buzzwords that i've heard in so many different contexts and, and i love as well because I think for me, fundamentally, when it comes down to looking at all of these notions, um, so long as we're able to kind of look at things from a God-centric way and, and anchor ourselves there really deeply at every level, that for me is success. And it doesn't matter if you lose your job. It doesn't matter if you make yeah. millions or not, because all of that stuff becomes secondary and inconsequential ultimately, right? I mean, it's, it's powerful. And, and it's also, it's, it's uh, the reason why I use the word culture, right? It's also culture, it's about a culture because culture is about norms and behaviors, about the mindsets, the values, the rituals. Um, I was talking to this lady, she's head of uh, a major sort of IT company, let's put it that way. And she was saying, I would wake up five o'clock in the morning to uh, attend a conference call, but I cannot wake up five o'clock in the morning to pray Fajr, right? Now, from a, from a hustle culture perspective, she is successful. She is literally the definition of success. From yeah. a butterfly culture perspective, there's some serious issues we need to deal with because that is the fundamental challenge there. Now, can you bring the two together? And this is where the question is. Some people, some people are like, well, can we just be part of hustle culture but, but sign up in butter culture? I was like, see, butterfly again, it's a paradigm shift. And this is where the, one of the beautiful things about Islam, Islam came to offer the world a way of living that is, like you said, centered and anchored in the worship of Allah versus centering ourselves. And as long as we organize our lives around that, right, whether it's organize our time, organize our energy, organize our focus, what we focus, what we don't focus on, organize, that is the definition of success. If you're able to live that Baraka culture without house culture taking over your life, that's the definition of success. And that's what uh, we need to work towards. Shaitan. Okay, so you're not saying don't, don't, incorporate some of the hustle but let the baraka overcome 
the hustle culture essentially yes okay. be centered in baraka that's this i mean you know i'll look for i look for examples for example people who are very successful but the very baraka culture perspective right you know they and that's not about rituals well it's not about okay, mashallah, they pray five times a day and they do the fasting they go hajj and umrah every year that's that's one aspect of it but even the mindsets for example they approach life from an abundance mindset perspective there's enough for everybody versus from a scarcity mindset where i have to win and you have to lose right we got to almost like cutthroat competition or values for example you know things like values like that but now is like you know professional jealousy and humbleness and mercy and compassion and not trying to you know squeeze your employees for the name of productivity because oh yeah we're trying to be productive i mean there's sort of values that we need to almost like honor in, in when they're whether on an individual level or position level institution level as well so so talking about values in that way I, i think what i've at least seen from the workplace and from just living is that often it's very easy to to say yes as muslims we shouldn't be jealous we shouldn't be envious we should be humble we should be all of these things but i think you know when you see for example a friend of yours or a colleague or whatever getting a promotion or doing well and succeeding whilst on the surface you're like no i'm not jealous it's fine it's fine and you try and you try and also manifest that the the reality is that deep down inside there is still that jealousy right um yes. and and i feel like for me at least the as you're saying there's this need to realign very deeply and internally as to how we see things and like you said if we if we're not looking at things from a uh, an abundance perspective if it's just that scarcity mindset then you're always going to have your back up against the wall you're always going to be looking over your shoulder because you're worried that an opportunity is going to disappear you don't think that everything comes from god at the right time in the right place you're just kind of concerned that there's not going to be enough and and god isn't going to provide because that's not how you see things right you see things exactly. that i have to hustle for myself exactly. i wanted to ask you i wanted to come back to something you if said if you could just I tell you a story yeah, yeah, on, on god, please there's a story here which i feel this exemplify this there was we love stories story. by the way so you can cut us up for <laughs> stories anytime there's a lady who uh, was coaching she um she came to a coaching call and she was really frustrated and basically she runs a business and her competitor launched the exact same product she was planning to launch like you know three months early and she was seething she's like oh my god i'm so upset da, 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 all that stuff so then we kind of approach it from that butterfly culture perspective i'm like well wh- how do you approach this and what what are you re- realizing and she realized okay and actually she realized she looked internally she realized this is a disease of the heart like the fact that I have this jealousy that is envy that's actually a disease in my heart which i need to cure so i'm like okay so what are you going to do about it and we would discuss many things and there's one point i told her this and she first flipped on me she didn't want to do it i told her i want you to go on social media and congratulate your competitor and recommend all your customers to go and buy the product and she was like hell no i'm not going like she like no 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 like she, i'm like just think the sleep on it just think about it so take it as a way as a medicine for your nerves because your ego doesn't want this your heart doesn't want this this is a way for it's a great opportunity to embrace but to really see but culture at, at at you know in play and to start realizing okay you know what i'm going to treat my nerves treat my heart and from disease so a few days later she emailed me back she goes I did that post and oh my god a i feel so much lighter and b allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed me with so many other ideas that i have not thought of before which actually way better <laughs> she has to stick with it but i feel so much better by embracing baraka culture so so imagine so again it's it's not a and that's why some people again it might logically might say well no but that guy did this and i'm like if you use opportunity to get closer to god 
That's where the baraka comes in. That's where you see success beyond imagination. And that's what baraka is basically. So, so what I was going to ask is that, let's say I, I drink the baraka culture Kool-Aid um, and I say, all right, I'm all in, let's do this. Um, we always talk about as Muslims, you know, the, the example of the prophet being the, the best of examples for us. And, and at the beginning, you mentioned uh, the sirah, the sunnah, a hadith and everything else. What do you have in terms of from your reading and experience as um, examples from the life of the Prophet that we can implement today um, that kind of fall into the Baraka culture category, assuming that the Baraka culture has derived from the life of the Prophet and, and, and his teachings? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, for me, like the model of Baraka, right? He is the model of Baraka um, and the epitome of Baraka. And I guess one of the most practical ways of looking at it, uh, we did an article, very popular article on the daily routine of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, on our website. And we just captured this kind of typical 24-hour day period. And whenever I share that sort of 24-hour period with people, they look at it thinking, that's it? <laughs> like, that's the first reaction. Like, you know, he doesn't seem busy. He doesn't seem stressed out. It's like, it's like, you know, but, you know, imagine he had the most important job in history, which is to save humanity. If one of us were given the mission of delivering a product worldwide within the 23 years, we'd be panicking, right? We'd be like, we'd be like, okay, uh, okay, let's put strategies, let's just travel east and west, let's do this, let's do work. So, but you see him, you know, from the moment he wakes up until the moment he sleeps, he's a very present in the moment. He's there, and b his whole life, you can tell, he's just, he's, it's God centric. You know, one of the most beautiful examples of being present. Is that you know he had mashallah he had multiple wives he had children and grandchildren he had the whole community. You never hear a single Sahabi or one of his family members ever complain. Ya Rasulullah, you're too busy for us. Oh, oh my God, you're so busy. Think about it. Like my wife complains about me all the time. <laughs> she goes, "You're too busy. You're working too much." Yeah, join the and club, man. Like, seriously, and you have this situation where you're like you know he's he's think about a man who's literally everyone wants his attention, everyone wants his time, everyone wants to be with him, and not a single person complains. Not even like a, a side, like, you know, as a joke, like, oh, God, he's too busy. And I started like, why is it? And I realized two things. Number one, A, he was there. Like when he spent time with Aisha, he was there. When he spent time with Abu Bakr, he was there. When he spent time with any Sahabi, that even Sahabi, some of them thought that they were the most beloved to the Prophet because he was there fully, he was present. Compared to, again, hustle culture where we're all over the place and never in that moment, you know. The second thing that came to mind was that he drew his energy and he drew his sort of like what kept him going and centered was again the salah and for five daily prayers number one and also specifically his night prayer his only me time if you look at his whole daily schedule his only real me time was tajib that was like his quote-unquote me time right we talk about you know people that sit back just chill, you know netflix and chill like his his chill moment is let me get up and actually meet my lord and there's a beautiful hadith where once Prophet Hansel was lying next to Aisha because his skin touched her skin. And, you know, in that moment of intimacy, he told Aisha, you know, can I get up and pray? Like, can I, do you give me, you know, give me permission to get up and pray? That his so again, he was so God-centered that that's what he was always looking forward to. And because of that, that's where the barakah comes in. Because of that, we see he lived, you know, his mission was for 23 years, but he, he did what no man could do in 100 years. That's true barakah. The impact the, the, was beyond expectation. Now, people say, oh, okay, he's a prophet and he's special and we're, we're just, you know, normal human beings. But I'm like, you can tap in a little bit of that barakah. And give you a simple example. When Prophet woke up in the morning, the first thing he did, first thing, was to grab his siwak. What is the first thing we do when we get up in the morning? Grab our we phone. grab our phones. 
There we go. Something simple. If you want to just, if so you it's just the mo- it's the modern day Miss Walk, no? I'm sure, I'm sure that's what people say. <laughs> and think about that mind. Think about the mindfulness it takes to get up, grab a suwak, and the first words you utter is, is remembers Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. Those small things which we tend to underestimate. Like, oh, we think we think we have to do some amazing feat to achieve peak performance, but those small things infuse so much butter in your day that you think oh my goodness i feel and nowadays even particular circles say protect your first hour if you grab if you don't check your phone mm. first hour in the morning you mm. actually be very productive so this this those so that those i mean for a practical perspective the Prophet showed us a model of being productive now it's not in terms of ritual that was in terms of practicality but even the way he conducted himself again the mindsets the values that he taught and i feel like if we were really embodying that we'll see the baraka in our lives beyond expectation shall so you've touched upon sort of the, the spiritual and the physical aspect. And one thing I kind of want to focus on is the, the social aspect on it. And you talk a bit about in your book about social energy. Can you kind of elaborate on that and how that affects our individual productivity, please? Absolutely. I think, again, we are, as human beings, we're not, um, you know, we're, we're social creatures. We, we connect with people. And Islam came as a, it's a very, it's a community-based religion, right? For example, the shahada, you, even if, if you, know, you say in front of somebody, salah is recommended doing jama'ah, fasting, we fast together as a community, you know, see the moon, it's fast together, and we break fast together. Well, it depends on the moon sighting situation there. But <laughs> that's Let's not get story. into that, please. Yeah. Let's not get into that. The hajj, for example, hajj, for example, is a very, you know, yeah, talk about the biggest world meeting in the world, right? It's a very community-based religion. And Prophet Muhammad when he entered Medina, his first instruction, first instruction was, feed the people, and spread the salam. And then the last one was, pray it, now people are sleeping. So the first two, like first two instructions, his first act as the, you know, as the new leader of Medina, was two of them were social and one of them was private. So that is to emphasize the importance of that social aspect of our faith. Also again, Baraka culture is about purpose impact driven. And, and there's two ways to look at purpose impact driven. Islam, again, you are a slave for Allah but also you are a servant to his creation, right? You act as a servant to his creation. That's the two purposes Allah gave us in the Quran. One is you're there to, to worship me, but also I'm making you as a Khalifa, I'm making you as a deputy on this earth. That idea of being a deputy, you're Allah's deputy on this earth, means you are there to be a public servant to his creation. I was once talking to a CEO of a, a startup, and he's like, yeah, I'm trying to, what's my intention, what's my knee, what's my great knee? I understand that idea of worship, but how does it relate to, you know, the people around me as a company, an organization, and all the stakeholders? And the moment I said, you are, you are Allah's deputy. Think about your Allah's deputy. Write down your job descriptions, Allah's deputy. Given the role you have as the CEO of an IT company, and he's like, oh, okay, that idea of deputy, there's like, I need to serve others. And the beautiful thing is that when you're in that moment of serving, you actually get social energy, you actually get energy. Um, again, I could not have done the work of Productive Muslim on my own. The fact having a team, having people who, you know, give that, they give that energy. So the idea of having that you draw energy from other people, and if those people come, not just with any social energy, but not like, you know, extroverts coming and dancing for you, but if they bring the barakah as well, if they bring in those good intentions, if they bring in that, you know, for example, I, I admire there's some teams that I talk to right now where they would talk about what's our niya for this meeting, right? They have an intention for a meeting. What is our, per, what is our, they make dua together in Ramadan, they all like share a dua list, for example. And say, okay, each of every team member makes the same dua, inshallah ta'ala, for the whole team during this Ramadan. Like that sort of social, spiritual energy can be just powerful. 
and it can again it can propel organizations forward so um if uh, as you were saying that it kind of makes sense that i'm thinking about for example the muslim team uh, sorry the muslim vibe team uh dynamic and setup and we you know we're lucky that we're here in office space where we can um do things like that start meetings with quran uh we probably don't do that enough to be honest but you know every now and then the idea comes up and we think actually that's a nice thing we should try and implement but i think for me i i always um think about you know i have many friends who don't work in muslim companies who work in the corporate world um and are either the only muslim in the building or you know one of a few uh how how practical is it to kind of engineer your thinking in that way because you're in an environment that it's not conducive i think at least towards uh if we can call it spirituality or like elevated spiritual thought or presence or being um because it's you know a lot of people are there um just for the the rat race for money whatever it might be um and so for you to kind of operate in that way number one i guess the question would be is it possible to survive and thrive because surviving yes maybe but actually thriving in that environment i think would be interesting if you're not being as cutthroat as everybody else but then also um, being in that environment, like you said, we're social beings, right? So, it, you know, there's so many hadith that talk about the friends that you keep, the, the company mm-hmm. that you keep is so important. If everybody around, around you is, is a negative impact on you and, and, and spiritually is draining in that way, I can't imagine it's very easy to really lift yourself mm-hmm. up and like, you know, walk on the clouds constantly when everybody else is just, is just there. So, and I'm sure you've come across and dealt with people in those kind of situations. Uh, what's, what's your thinking about that? Absolutely. I love that question. It's, and it's something that we have been trying to actively promote um, and first of all, train Muslim professionals to become what are called Baraka culture professionals. We want people to embody Baraka culture. The first is awareness, being aware that there is an alternative to hustle culture. The second one is to train on the skills. What are the mindsets, the values, the rituals I need to implement myself in that environment? But then you'd be surprised. For example, I gave talks to American Airlines, Salesforce, Google, you know, uh, Texas Instruments, major corporations. They have this, nowadays this whole faith-based ERGs, a lot of multi-faith network happening. So I gave Deloitte, Accenture, EY. Whenever I give these talks and Muslim, non-Muslim audiences, people get it. Literally, people get it. They're like, yeah, like this hustle culture is driving us nuts. <laughs> it's like we, and even surprised. A lot, a lot of some of them come up to, hey, this Baraka stuff. Where do you get this Baraka stuff? I love this Baraka <laughs> stuff. I'm like, yeah, it's you know, order Amazon.com. You get it there. But the idea that you know there is a thirst, and that's why nowadays, even in the last year, especially with COVID, you know, there's been a thirst for spirituality, for presence, for mindfulness. There's now, people talk about start your Zoom meetings with a ritual, right? There's that language and there's a New York Times article talks about how there's now corporate spirituality, right? And again, so they're trying trying to dance on the subject because they feel uncomfortable to breach the religion topic. But my argument, and actually I'm part of an organization called Business, uh, Religious Freedom Business Foundation, where we are actively talking to major corporations to say you need to embrace religion. They call it religion is the last taboo in the workplace. You need to you know, embrace spirituality, religion, because people need to bring their whole selves to work. If I have to tiptoe around one of the most, most important identities about me, the most important fundamental in person, whether you're Muslim or not, if that's, if that's the most important thing to you and I have to tiptoe around that in your work, then this, again, you're not getting the, you're not going to get this full version of this person at your, at your place. Okay, so, so just on that specific point, I think the, 
for me at least the issue is that in in uh western countries and like i mean france is a prime example where there is this very clear separation between religion and and the state um the problem for me is that it's not compatible with the societies that we live in. So it's okay for you to say that, but ultimately you're never going to have companies that are going to even in some cases be legally allowed to engage and indulge in kind of religious conversations and, and prying into that space. So, so again, it's, it's like, cause this is, this is the other thing, right? Our unique situation as Muslims in the West is that a lot of the examples that we have from the prophet and 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 from uh, general islamic tradition is that it's all based on a prophetic time when it was an islamic society and, and everyone was muslim uh, and so it's kind of easy to say oh this is how it should be this is how society should be but you know we have a very kind of beautiful but at some times you might call it a rigid framework for 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 living um I, I again rigid sounds negative but you know what i mean like it's, it's you know quite defined in the way that we practice we pray we fast and everything else and that's not always necessarily compatible so interestingly in, in fact the last podcast uh, we had a brother called sadik on and he was talking about his experience um working in the kind of corporate world and trying to get a job and one job he didn't get for example because he was introduced to the team uh, and, and they tried to take him to the pub. And he said, oh, I'm not going to go there. He had pretty much got the job that the recruiter had said, you know, you're pretty much in. You just need to meet the team. And he refused to go into the pub. Um, and then he got a call back like two days later from the recruiter saying, yeah, it was like a mismatch of culture or something like that. So, sorry, it's a bit of a long-winded um, interjection. But you, you know what I mean? Like, like there is this yeah. like very fundamental core incompatibility. Um, that we need to address because I don't think it's as straightforward as just like, oh yeah, change your mindset and, and it'll all work out. Absolutely. A couple of things, points in. One, when we say that we cannot compare prophetic time, I think there's a, maybe a sort of correction there is that Prophet Muhammad stayed 10 years in Mecca. I feel like Muslims in the West, if they want to compare themselves to the Sira, they should compare themselves with their, the Meccan period. Yeah. Because that is an example of how the companions and prophet lived in a largely non-Muslim society, number one. So that could be a good model. What, what happened, how they conduct themselves. Number two, and I, again, sorry for saying this, but I feel like as Muslim professionals, we have an inferiority complex where we feel we are less than and what we have is not valuable and not important enough to kind of hold on and to say, this is fundamental. I was talking to a doctor, NHS doctor, and he goes, you know, he goes, I'm just struggling to pray at work because even though NHS and no problem, and in fact, you know, they have a place to pray, but confidence, like, oh, I just feel I've done, I just don't talk about faith religion is uncomfortable. And, and like, is how important is prayer for you? So there's almost like there was an inferiority, lack of confidence factor that needs to we to overcome as Muslims, like actually, this is fundamental. This is, this is the most important thing of my life and I need to structure my life around that. Number three, we need more. Again, I feel like sometimes we feel trapped. This is more on a fundamental level. I feel we feel, tra feel trapped in this notion of um, where is risk coming from? And we feel like our risk is in the hands of our bosses, our risk in the hands of corporations, our risk in the hands. And I feel like that's why I'm actually a big advocate of Muslims having their own businesses, having a side hustle and not relying on a single income where literally they can you know, dictate your life and become a slave to that, to that, to the environment. 
with all practicalities, you know, aside, this is one of the challenges of us. It's like, we've kind of bought into this is the narrative of life. And if I don't subscribe this narrative, I'll be poor and destitute and I will have, won't have any, I can't feed my family. No, we just challenge the narrative. And, and finally, I want to say is that, you know, unless we embrace Baraka culture, it will become victims of hustle culture. And I've seen examples of people, you know, almost like you lose your soul, literally. And then you try to justify it. Oh, I was trying to feed my family. This is for the job. I was trying to pay the mortgage. And after a lifetime, when you reach, when you hit 50, 60, 70, you look back and you realize, was it all worth it? Or did I lose something along the way? I, I want to let Roxana jump in quickly. But before that, I have one quick question. So again, you're talking about Baraka culture versus um, hustle, hustle culture. Do you think it's, it's a binary choice or is there a gray area in between? Like, it, can it only be Baraka culture? Or is there like a hybrid uh, version that is better I mean, for the environment? That's, and that's, that's like saying, do, more I miles to the gallon? do I choose a f- being a 50% slave loss at Ayla or 100% slave loss at Ayla? All of us on a journey, I'll be honest. We're all, at what, we're all in hustle culture in one shape or form. It's, like I said, we live in a society where hustle culture is a dominant way of living. Mm. And what I'm trying to say, we, are, we need to transition. Right? I'm not saying it's going to be like, wake up in the morning, all right, that's it, I'm buttercult today, and boom, like, you know, everyone's like, whoa, what's going on here? It's going to be a transition. But as long as we actively make that transition, we consciously make that transition. From the moment we wake up until the moment we sleep, we're thinking, what are the choices you need to make? What the, the words I say, you know, do they represent Baraka culture? And kind of like really think through that. And trust me, you'll be, it will come, it'll be very clear. It was like, it talk about personal branding. I feel like as a Baraka culture professional, there's a, there's a doctor who, um, he's a chief hospitalist. So he runs a hospital here in the U.S., and he went through our programs and he said that just, you know, he'll give you a simple example. He was saying he was, had to give feedback to his team members. Now, normally those conversations, you know, they're very, you know, giving feedback and it was not very good feedback because that, but the person who came, you know, they had tears in their eyes and like, what's why tears? Like, this is the first time I'm getting feedback where I felt that the person giving me feedback was sincere and gave me, wanted me to be better. And where did that come from? Where did that sincerity come from? That sincerity came because he said, before this meeting, I made dua, prayed istikhar, and asked Allah to guide me how can I give feedback in the best possible mm-hmm. to this person. So they brought this barakah in such a beautiful way to the point where, even though he didn't say Allah, he didn't give a da'wah, he didn't give like a whole lecture, this person felt it. Like, something's different here. This is not the normal way of manager, you know, direct relationship. That's what I mean. So again, it's, it's about how do we embody these values versus just outwardly have them without... And, and, and people will see that and like, hey, you want to be part of that versus trying to hide it and feel uncomfortable about it, basically. So I kind of want to go into um, the sort of common pitfalls and things that can arise from trying to be productive. Because whilst I agree with the majority of your kind of processes and your thoughts, um, I kind of wanted to ask, do you think it's equally realistic for both Muslim men and women to have the same amount of time to be productive. So for myself, I can only speak of my culture, my experience, and women that I've spoken to. A lot of the responsibilities falls on, particularly in the British Asian community here, falls on the women. So women are also working, they're doing all the washing, the cooking, the cleaning, the house chores. And so usually they're trying to squeeze a 35 hour day within 24 hours. And then they do, they, they slack on their, on their prayers and we have very open discussions about it. Um, and obviously, I'm not saying that all men, all men sort of 
shirk their responsibilities because I don't want to uh, sort of categorize people in one, in one one sort of group. But how can we make sure that the productivity is sustainable for both men and Muslim women? Brilliant, great question, great question. It's a conversation I have with my wife all the time. I'll be honest. You know, it's because you know we have got three kids. We both work from home. My wife has a business. I run a business, and it's almost like having that discussion of a first we start centering our lives of what is the most important thing in our lives it's, again when we when you got centered those conversations becomes easy because all about okay, what how can we both work towards that ultimate perspective of pleasing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala versus what's egocentric it's like oh my goals versus your goals and who has more important goals and again, let's just fight through this kind of thing so that's number one number two it's it's having those it's again having that um um that Something like literally, my wife and I sit down and we actually plan out our morning routines. And, and we kind of look at both, morning, we kind of compare both morning routines side by side. So we, where can we swap? Especially working from home, right? where can we swap? For example, she needs, I need to take care of the kids while she did works on this X, Y, and Z. You know, and we kind, of like, we kind of like see where that comes from. But you're absolutely right. I mean, again, 100% agree. Even we, with all of that discussion we have, I will honestly say that my wife takes a bigger responsibility at home compared to myself. And it's something that I'm not proud of, but it's something that given where we are in our lives, it's yeah. that the conversation. So the question is, how do we have these productive conversations about what's important, how are we working together, what's working, what's not working? And these are constant conversations. I'm literally, we have this conversation almost, if not every day, every week, because it's almost like how we both can be productive given the constraints and given the life season we're in. Right now, we have young kids, so there's a lot of risk, you know, positive there. When the kids get older, the life seasons change. So it's like, it's, it's a constant conversation. It starts from that particular conversation. Um, but again, I think about, I will say whenever, whenever I talk to, talk to couples, whenever there is that hustle culture drive of productivity versus butter culture drive, it's a much harder conversation to manage because it's about egocentric world success. Well, I make more money than you. So therefore that so it becomes this whole this conversation where it just doesn't, it becomes like a, a you know, a fight fest versus what is our but purpose? Do you think also, again, I'm just going on from conversations I've had with mm. friends and other women. Do you think it's also an element of laziness as well? Because, you know, someone will say, I've worked nine to five today and I've had meetings all day. Now I want to spend five to 10 p.m. going to the gym, going for a run, you know, going to see your friends, obviously pre-COVID, <laughs> um, you know, seeing your friends or, you know, just, just like you said, just Netflix chilling out. So how can we say, for example, if there's a married couple and they want one person wants to have that conversation, but the other mm. person is very sort of resolute and says, well, you know, I want those four or five hours to chill for myself. How can you bring that up? But in a kind Islamic way, to yeah. overcome those situations because you're and, and I think on the same page. So just, just to just I guess um, add to the question a little bit. I, I I do feel and I've seen it as well where um, often I think because the uh, Islamic roles are that the the man is the provider and the woman is the nurturer in the home and everything else that kind of gets brought forward and and in in like you know London in 2021 today to survive to pay rent often both the husband and wife need to be working that's just a, that's just a lived reality and but, but when it comes to coming home and then cooking and cleaning and whatever it's like oh but the home is the is the woman's domain i'm tired i need to do all of these things socialize you know run whatever um yeah. and i think you know there's it's interesting because again like we've spoken already about that whole east west slash islam west dynamic and and dichotomy and everything that we have at play but 
where do we how do we have these conversations in a productive way especially as couples um, because it is difficult and and it's very easy to and again like you know you've spoken about your own experiences you know I've I've been in these situations where me and my wife are kind of discussing and sometimes it feels like either she doesn't treat me with respect or vice versa and, and it's very easy to kind of trigger each other into anger or, or being upset, but that's not the intention. But I, I also do know that that's ego at play, either from the aggressor or from the victim. It's, you know, either way, it's like you, you want to have a kind of God-centered conversation, but it's very mm-hmm. easy to slip back into um, the, the whole ego-centric thing. Um, so, yeah, you're, I mean, look, the, the, the answer that you give to this question could solve... <laughs> So many problems. So either, cause, either cause more marital issues or solve issues. Let me just ask Allah for assistance. A um, couple of things. First of all, my practical tip, have these conversations in the morning, not at night. Because when you have this conversation at night, you're both tired. The kids have gone and going, you drive crazy. You're both tired. It's not a productive time to have a conversation. Emotionally taxing conversations, have them when you're both at your best. Go out on a dinner. Go out when you feel better. Go out at breakfast. Like We feel like you are at your best mentally, spiritually, physically, socially, have those conversations. And that's just a practical tip there. But about how you bring that topic back to Rosanna's question, your question as well, how do you bring out this topic in a way that's God-centered? I do a simple exercise in my workshops. I actually ask people to draw a chart and say, write down all the roles you have in life, right? So example, so, if I, so a dad would be my role as a husband, father, worker, CEO, you know, community member, board member, message owner, blah, 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 all that stuff. Okay. And then example, also the wife and the, and the mother, write down all the roles you play in life. Okay. So, I, you know, wife, mother, daughter, daughter-in-law, all that stuff. And then I'll say, give yourself a score from zero to 100 on, on, that, on that role. How well are you performing? Give yourself a subjective score. You're not supposed to, don't give each other the score because then you'll ever bash each other. <laughs> give your own subjective score, how you feel you're performing in that role. So they start giving you know, some people with 40%, 50%. And then I, and I ask the question is, okay, um, which, you know, which of those roles are, are mandatory, like are important, like things that you can let go. For example, being a father, right? you can't just you know, shirk and just run off well. Inshallah, hopefully don't. Right? And then being a mother or being a, you know, which responsibilities I feel like these are managed roles important, which are elective roles, roles that you choose, right? For example, I'm a board member of a community program or I'm involved in some volunteering. These are elective roles. Okay. Now, once you have that, you understand your, you look at your roles, you look at your performance levels, you understand which are your managed elective. Now the next question comes is, okay, what is the hack of that role upon you? What is the haq? What is the right that you'll be held accountable for on the day of judgment for that role? So, for example, let's say for, for a father, you know, you're, the haq is you provide, you even things like choosing the right spouse, you know, you know giving tarbiyah to your children. These are, resp- these are haq. Allah will ask you about this question. You'll be held accountable for this question. And I use that. That's your minimum performance level. So say, am I fulfilling the haq of this role? Right? Mm-hmm. Am I fulfilling the haq of this role? If I am, Let's say, you know, you're great, mashallah. If you're a mom who, mashallah, every day she goes all out, because you're doing ihsan your role, great. If you're doing less than that haq, then that's, that's then you're going to need to work, again, I need to work out something. Now, the challenge becomes is, okay, let's say you discover there's some gaps. Some roles you do really well, you're going above and beyond your role, and some roles you're doing less than. The next question is, again, since you have limited energy, focus, and time, how can you rebalance your roles? Meaning, some things need to drop some responsibilities to drop, especially elective roles. 
Number two, some things need to reduce your performance in one role in order to increase your performance in another role. For example, I was talking to an author and a doctor, a much amazing guy, and he realized that my, my kids are reaching seven years of age. And I feel like these next seven years from seven to 14 are so critical and for me as a father to be involved. So he said he actually cut down responsibilities, including some of his writing, you know, to focus more on his role as a dad. So he saw, he saw that balance where he said, I realized, okay, given the season of life, given the context I'm in, for example, if one of our parents is getting old and sick, we need to reduce our performance in one role and to increase our performance in another role. So I feel like it's, it's having that dynamic conversation. These are not set in stone. Okay, from five o'clock, six o'clock, I'll be on Netflix. Don't, don't disturb me. No, these are dynamic conversations based on the roles you play in life, based on your performance levels, based on uh, the help that you'll be held responsible for and saying, well, how do I recalibrate this for both couples? And I hope that starts the conversation at least in the right direction, Sean. Thank you. We'll, we'll um, let you know based on, on feedback if you've, <laughs> if you've uh, healed marriages or broken them. <laughs> um, one thing I really kind of want to uh, talk about is, um, so for me personally, since I've, since I've started a family, I used to constantly be on, on the go. Obviously, like it was just not nonstop. I feel like I still am in some aspects, but I try to make sure that for me, productivity doesn't necessarily mean I'm always doing something. And if I'm constantly doing something and I don't give myself, I try to have at least an hour downtime a week to myself where I'm not doing something for somebody else. And I kind of feel like there's this common misconception that if you're not constantly doing something, you're not being productive. But that hour of to myself doing something means that I'm more productive in the long run for the rest rest of the week and you go through this sort of list of um what productivity is not um and i think they're really interesting could you kind of elaborate on them for us yeah talking about productivity is not an it's not about being busy right we we kind of equate being busy with productivity again that workism culture the idea that busy is a badge of honor like how are you how busy right if someone says how are you like ah i'm okay i'm not really busy like what's wrong with you are you okay are you like unemployed what's going what's going on in your life like why are you not busy like right it's again it's a very cultural thing we've we've kind of equated that with status in fact one of the anomalies of modern day life is that even rich people work longer. It should, historically, think about it, rich people, they should sit down, not, not do work. They're just, you know, get people to serve them. But now rich people feel the need because that's part of status symbol to work and keep on working, being busy. So that's number one, is, that's the most, first misconception. The second misconception is that productivity is not an event, right? You don't wake up in the morning, oh, I'm productive today, right? You're like, wow, <laughs> it's not an event, it's a process. It's a process. Again, remember the constant process of realigning energy, focus, and time across all your roles for the sake of God, right? This whole process, which means it's constantly evolving. My routines change. So I don't, I'm not like a robot, five o'clock, six o'clock, I do this. Routines change. In fact, one of the benefits of beauty of Islam, the fact that the daily prayers change with the seasons, it's forcing us to change. I know it's people find annoying. Oh my God, why do prayer times change? I want to just like, why can't it be set, set time? But that's the beauty of Islam is to kind of force you not to be a machine, but to be aligned with nature, be aligned with Allah's creation versus being in this kind of industrial mindset of, oh, I've got to work from nine o'clock till five o'clock and that's it. Um, the third thing that produces not is that, so it's not event, it's not a process, it's, it's, it's an event, not a process, but it's a process, not an event. And it's not about, it's not, it's not a, uh, I say it's not, it's not like, um, what was the third thing? I forgot the third one actually. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was what was like not in bed want to see i mean viewers look at the book um productivity is not boring uh, that's fine you not boring 
I was going to say yeah. we, we can hold back the third one for the book. You, you got to get the book to hear the third point. <laughs> I, I, I avidly read your book. I remember you saying productivity is not Isn't for it. I've got my notes here. Uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's not about. Yeah. Absolutely. That's not what I mean. That it's not about, again, people, oh my God, it's productive person. He doesn't chill out, he doesn't relax, he doesn't have fun. Like you said, like I, for example, I love cycling, I love baking, right? These are my ways of, in, in, again, you might think, oh, like, that's, that's still being productive, still doing exercise, not like sitting down watching Facebook. But for me, that's how I, that's my downtime, like how mm-hmm. I, I'm intentional about my downtime. And back to your point, and this is where it comes back to intentions, where the beautiful thing about Islam is that the intention, is so important. You know, the, if, you, if you put food in your, in your spouse's mouth, that is charity. If you hug your children, that is charity. That you being productive, really, that's like, if you talk about charity, that's you being productive. So when you start realizing the power of intentions and how even the moments of your downtime, what's the intention behind that? That by itself is actually, re- so you don't feel guilty or shame, oh my God, I'm wasting time. You know, I'm being intentional and I'm being rewarded for this time. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, is, is, is giving me a reward for this, even this downtime. And that's why it feels, you feel good. You feel like, alhamdulillah, I feel great. You come out fully recovered versus being always stressed and feeling guilty about your downtime. You know, yeah, definitely. Oh, sorry, uh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, this is something that, that I realized as well. Um, I think it was last year or the year before where I was, I, I've always, you know, I've always wanted to kind of do something with my time and make the most of, of every moment that I have. And, and I found myself at one point incredibly stretched. So I was I was volunteering with loads of things. I was running the Muslim vibe. I was running another business, and and it's like every so I was busy. I was very very busy, but I wasn't productive. Um, and and so even you know my wife, for example, would always feel like I, I I wasn't giving enough energy at home. So I was there maybe physically, but mentally I was so drained and tired that that I wasn't able to kind of give anything. And and so the process that I went through was exactly what you said. Maybe not as um, almost God-centric, but it was more like practically looking at all the responsibilities I have and seeing, okay, which ones can drop? Like you said, I can't drop being a father. I can't drop being a husband. Um, I, I, at the moment, I, I can't drop the Muslim vibe, for example. Maybe in the future that might change. Um, but then looking at the ones that were on the peripheries and saying, all right, this one I can probably get rid of. And I think for me, at least, the frustrating thing initially was the thought that I, I want to make the most of my time, especially, you know, when I'm in my, my relative youth. I say relative because I know my white hairs are starting to kind of um, take over my head now. But I, I wanted to make sure that I was making the most of my time. But what I realized actually, and, actually and, and something I've come to learn through the Muslim vibe by meeting so many incredible people, is that unfortunately there are a lot of people who are very successful activists, writers, authors, speakers, and whatever else. Um, but when you dig a little bit deeper, often their personal life is in tatters. Um, and, and I know, I know someone that like it was, I think it was Eid and I was like, Oh, you know, like, what, what are you doing on Eid? And, and he's, he's divorced or separating. He's like, oh, I, I, I wanted to see my kid, but I couldn't cause I had X, Y, Z to do. And, and he said that with like actual pain in, in the way he was saying it. And I realized like, you know, you can look at somebody on the surface and, and see that, Oh, they're so productive. They do so much, you know, they're so amazing at X, Y, Z. But I don't know how you guys both feel about this, but I've come to the realization that actually true success for me is about balancing the responsibilities and the roles that I have today and, and being able to give as much to each of those. So if it's just, for example, my capacity as a father, a husband, and if I was in full-time employment, just those three things, and that's it. And I don't have time to volunteer at the mosque to, 
do this and that then then that's okay there's nothing wrong with that and i think you know we because we're so dr- drawn into the kind of worldly success dynamic that actually you you kind of forget the bigger picture which is like there's no point having 10 million pounds if your 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 kid doesn't know you or your kid does, you know you know i mean you're not giving your 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 kid that kind of love um but but it's it's as you say it's a journey and it's a process right and 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 sometimes it's quite difficult to go through that realization and to actually sit and doing that thinking because that's what i had to do i actually have to sit down and think right how do i try and be more and i and i'm i'm still not at 100% in any of my roles i don't think anyone ever is as you say that's like prophetic levels right where you're every conversation you're 100% there and and people get that energy and you can do it sometimes um but but it's it's about finding that balance anyways that's my mini sermon over i apologize uh, no 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 mashallah it's, it's very powerful and it's a it's a realization that, again i wish people would take more time to rethink um one thing that i've done personally for me because again running a running a business and family is i've created like a small like two three of brothers that are we're part of like a small like a mini called the mastermind or our sohba where we hold ourselves accountable and, and our, our goals are very low like you know what Let's reach old age and we both are not, we're all not divorced and we, our kids love us and our business is, is still intact. Like if we get that, if we made it. You know, we that's not, that's it. not an easy thing what you just said. That's not easy at all. But yeah, no, inshallah. It's, it's like, but that's the idea, like holding, having the suhbah as well, like having the journey. That's yeah. why I love Surah Al-Asr. Surah Al-Asr, you know, Allah says, well, Asr, in the Lisa, the Khusr, mankind is in loss, right? Mankind it's a losing game. And it's illa, except. If he did not put illa, it would be like, what a very depressing surah. But the fact is saying, by time, mankind's in loss, except, and you're like, okay, who are the ones that are going to make it? And then he goes, those who believe, those who do righteous deeds, and those who enjoin each other, right? And that's why the thing that the Muslim vibe is like part of enjoining towards truth, enjoining towards patience, kind of like, all right, we can do this, we can move it again, step by step, day by day. And again, it's not about those big, massive achievements. It's about those step by step, day by day. And that's why one of people who attended my workshops, he said, I realized after doing the workshop is that when I learned how to perfect my day and to align as much as possible to prophetic day, then everything else fell in place, right? It's like everything else fell in place versus trying to mega goals and like, you know, be hacks and all that stuff and then losing yourself along the way kind of thing. The, I think the sad thing about it for a lot of people is that they, they live life to a goal um, and, and the goal is what they're living for and they don't care how they get there. For me, as I said, like the shift that happened a few years ago was about the journey. So as long as every day I'm working towards my goal, I don't mind if I never reach that goal. And I never think I will, because especially for like the Muslim vibe, our goals are not like, oh, hit 1 million and five followers, because we can do that. That's a number. But our goal is never tangible and it's always really far away. It's but it's just, it's exactly, it's, it's, but, but this is the thing. People need to re-anchor in that way. And it's not easy. Um, it's not easy. I was talking to a uh, uh, few organizations. When you know OKRs, right? Objective key results, classic object goal setting set up by Google, I think. And I thought, you know, we shifted. I was talking to a few businesses to IKRs, intention, and then key mm-hmm. results. Like, what's the intention? And the beautiful thing, about, again, the beautiful thing about intention is that one thing that I've started to learn is that the stuff we want in our life, maybe you won't do it, but you might start something that your kids or grandkids or five generations down the road might actually achieve it. But what would you start today? That's a barakah culture. It's about long-term thinking. What would you start today that you can, inshallah, maintain and be a fruitful thing for you for generations to come? That's why one of the most barakah institutions that we've lost in the ummah is the waqf institution. You know, waqf institutions, you know, this is one point that says like 60 or 70% of the Islamic civilization economy came from waqf institutions, which meant social safety nets, free healthcare, free education, 
for society because of the idea of a waqf, the idea of a trust you put in Allah That is, again, that's on a, on a civilizational level where Baraka culture is leading versus, you know, again, like you said, trying to be, trying to fit everything within 60 years. And then if, the, if, if things don't go your way, you feel like, dang, I messed up. And if things go your way, is the other flip side. We say, oh, I did it, right? It's me. I made this money, I made this wealth, I'm the smart guy. Versus realizing, hey, wait a second, that's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who gave you permission. Just, just you know, be humble, right? Don't attribute success to yourself. So it's, just, it's both sides as well. Yeah, so I, I kind of agree with you, particularly about, um, I think, again, I've learned, my definition of success has definitely changed over the last 10 years I think probably it was a little bit more egocentric if I'm completely honest um and success for me isn't just about what role have I got um you know how much money have I got what house have I got um and it has and it has changed and um I think particularly over the pandemic people's perceptions of productivity and the pressures have changed and with that so say for example I used to mentor quite a lot and life took over and I haven't done it for a while. And now I've rejoined schemes in the UK where I'll be mentoring people. But again, they're probably a little bit of a selfish intention because that's for my own spiritual, you know, energy and I'm reconnecting with other people and I'm, you know, I'm helping them. I'm not getting anything, you know, monetary out of it, so to speak. But but I feel like my faith is quite strong. So I'm quite, in line and in tune with myself but for people who whose faith might be wavering and that happens to everyone at some point no judgment how can you make sure you're still a productive muslim when you feel like your faith might not be strong at that time this might sound like a weird answer but say give up control mm. a lot of us we were we want to be in control control of our lives control of our time control of everything and I want us to get in that position of being a slave to our master, to our creator, in the true sense. Um, we are godless where you are on the spectrum of how religious you are or not, how practical you are not, is to give up control and to, and to realize what, what the, the metaphor gives like a gardener. And the gardener, they plant the seed, they work hard, but they cannot guarantee the fruits. Right? And, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran says, So to afara'aytu ma tahruthun. Do you see that seed which you sow? Are you the one who makes it grow or are we the grower? So Allah's putting the spotlight like, ah, of course you're the one who makes it grow. So sometimes it's the idea that you put in the intentions. What is it you want out of life? What are the intentions? Like, it's like, let me do the exercise like, you know, as mentioned earlier, do the exercises um, that uh, Salim was, was talking about, the idea of think, rethinking, you're recalibrating, think about what you need to focus on and say, what's my intention? Turn to Allah sincerely and say, Allah, like, these are my intentions. Help me fulfill them. I'm your slave. You're my master. Guide me. Show me. And I'll follow the breadcrumbs, as I mentioned. And Allah will open the doors for you, inshallah. But do you also think, again, I mean, a part of your book kind of says, um, and correct me if, I, if I'm wrong, but the kind of general consensus is try to focus on one task a day because you're kind of conserving a little bit of your energy but for me I've tried both where I've tried to do just one goal but I feel like I work better in hourly or you know in increments essentially and that works for me so do you kind of appreciate that not one purpose or one size fits fits all or is it quite rigid your process no, no, absolutely again I've, I think I've as you as you coach more people and you work with more people, you realize there's definitely variety. We're not. This is a beauty of a humanity and human beings. Each of us brings their own 
flavor thing, but we're all turning towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala how best we can serve him. Yeah. One process that I've maybe refined over the years is instead of having an MIT list or most important tasks for the day, and I have a MII list, most important intentions for today. Okay. And the intention is not about to-dos only. Some of the to-dos, for example, my intention is to, let's say, uh, launch this product or to send this email, but also to be. Like to, today, my intention is to be more kind to my children. My intention is to be more uh, present with my, with my wife. Like Kind of like, what's your intention? And I feel like that has helped me a lot. Uh, where before, when I end of the day, if I don't do my to-do list, if I don't get, knock out those things, like, oh, I feel like, man, this is not a productive day. But now I'm like, if I sincerely try to my intentions, even if the things don't work out, I'm like, I feel like I've moved, I made progress in that intention. I've actually, and that has been very tra- a, a transformative experience for me, alhamdulillah. And um, there was another thing I just kind of want to briefly touch upon, um, which actually I hadn't really thought about, is productivity after death. Because obviously I was just thinking of it mainly in the physical sense. Um, and you were saying that it's important to uh, you know, invest in your children, um, uh, invest in an ongoing charity and um, invest in yourself as well by writing a book or YouTube. I was particularly interested in the children aspect um, and investing in, your, in yourself and what you meant specifically on that. Absolutely. I mean, I feel this ultimate productivity uh, is to, you know, when you think about it, if you, if you know where you're going and you know that, you know what, let me put, let me put the investments here now so that even when I pass, pass away, those investments still, you know, still reap rewards for me. And Prophet gave us the guidelines that, you know, three categories, children, ongoing charity, and beneficial knowledge. So with children, fascinating thing. Oh, okay, just you know, have lots of children. Shout out, they'll pray for you. No, that doesn't really easy. It's magic. It's, it's raising your children in such a way that when you pass away, number one, not only are they shout out, good Muslims that they pray for you, but they love you so deeply that they'll continue to pray for you after him. It's like, okay, mama's dead or dad's died. Alhamdulillah, you know, may Allah forgive him and they forget about you next 20 years. It's like they love you so deeply that they continue making dua for you and they continue carrying on the legacy that you've, you've started. That for me is, is the kind of, you know, talk about, again, success. That is ultimate success. And maybe even passing it on to their children. I know, I know people who for generations make dua for like the great-grandfather and the great-great-grandfather because of what the, the barak and the khayr that your grand taught them. So that, that is where it's something else, right? It's something else. And also, even for those who don't have children, is to think, be, you know, think about, for example, how can you take care? It could be nephews and nieces, could be orphans, mm-hmm. could be, think beyond just the biological children as well. Because those are children that can pray for you as well. They can make dua for you um, and, and, and hope also support you as well. So it's, it's about thinking also when I wrote that chapter, I wanted people to think beyond the normal traditional advice. Like, okay, fine, you know, children, and then I'll pay for a well in Africa. And also I'm going to do, um, and I publish a post, a book. Think beyond that. Like the Muslim vibe is a great example. How can you build the Muslim vibe as an institution that lasts generations, last a thousand years, right? Those are the conversations you can have among the team and become sadaqajari for all of you. So it's like that perspective yeah. also needs to be involved. I think for a lot of people, I think we think of it as legacy, like what you left behind. But then again, that's actually quite an egocentric, egocentric exactly. thing. Uh, I'm learning, I'm learning. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite an egocentric thing. So I hadn't really thought about how it's going to continue to be more... Um, it's crossed my mind, but the fact that I was using the word legacy before rather than productivity just shows that, you know, a lot of us do need to kind of shift our mindset. And 
I just want to end, end it really on one last thing. Obviously, a lot of people um, and our listeners, we're all struggling and going through our own sort of battles and we'll have during coronavirus. And we may feel like our productivity has either peaked or, or dipped. Um, and is there any kind of like closing words of wisdom you'd like to give to our listeners just to give them a bit of hope, really? Yeah. Yeah, and I hope this answers both questions in terms of both the legacy question as well as ending it. You know, a lot of us when we think about uh, productivity or getting things done, we start with, if, even in terms of intentions, our intention can be what I call the world intention, with what's in it for me, right? And sometimes we upgrade that intention a little bit and say, you know what, it's not about what's in it for me, I should do it for honor, for reputation, for fame, right? Or sometimes I upgrade and say, actually, no, I want to just because I feel good. I don't care what people say. I don't care about financial world again. I just do it so I can feel good about myself. All these three levels so far is still egocentric. It's still hustle culture driven, even the feel good factor. What we need to do is stop to break into the hustle cultures, uh, to, to barca cultures, are we asking the question, how can we, basically, you know, you can do something, how can I do things spiritually? How can I do things for my akhirah? And how can, most importantly, how can I do things to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? One of the best advice I got, which I've been carrying for years, which I mentioned in the book, when I met um, Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayya, a well-renowned scholar, went to his home and we just asked him for advice, you know, give us advice. And he said, literally two words, a few words said, have good intentions, have sincere intentions and work hard. That was it, right? Don't worry about the outcome, don't worry about the legacy, don't worry about all the stuff, have yeah. good intentions and work hard. And I felt like that is a motto of success, professionally, spiritually, with family, you have the good intentions, you do your work, hard work, and leave the results of Allah Thank you so That's much. Awesome. Thank, you. Your time. Thank you. I, I, I was going to say that um, it, it's, been a, it's been a pleasure having you on. I, I do want to make one last plea for you to return back to the old logo. Um, <laughs> I, I, I honestly, I, I think it's something you should really consider, but um, no, j- jokes aside, like I, I'm, I'm really actually uh, glad uh, to, to to have had this conversation and to hear your kind of personal outlook as well because I, I think a lot of what you said I personally resonate with and I've, I've, I think without having actually um, read the book specifically or kind of been a part of the Baraka culture crew up until now um, a, a lot of the kind of theories um, and, and the kind of framework that you've spoken about is is something that I, I can relate with in terms of my own experience of, of uh, I guess, just thinking about how I live. And, and coming back to something you said right at the beginning um, about, you know, when you meet someone, you say, what do you do? Um, my wife always has a go at me because she always asks me like, oh, like, what does this person do? And I have no clue what my friends do for, for, for a living because I, I find that the least interesting thing to talk about um, because again, it's like, it's so arbitrary, right? Like you can have studied law and become a lawyer or studied medicine and become a doctor. It doesn't define who you are as a person. And so, so she always gets annoyed at me because she thinks I don't care about my friends enough, but I'm like, no, I care about them so deeply that I don't care what they do for a living because it's about the personality. Right. Um, but no, thank you very much. It's actually, I, I mean, it's been over an hour. Time has just flown. Um, I think we could do this for another couple of hours. But, uh, you know, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll spare the listeners, I think. <laughs> exactly. okay. no, thank no. you so much. May Allah be barakah in your work you do. And may Allah be barakah in everything you guys do. Again, it's important to have these media platforms where we can share a different perspective, a different worldview um, that we, the world needs, not just Muslims. I feel the world needs. So thank you so much for what you, what you do. And really honored to accept this from you all of Inshallah. Inshallah. Thank you very much. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Salam. 
So that was our conversation with Muhammad from Productive Muslim. Um, as I mentioned right at the beginning, I think uh, I, I was, uh, I, I'm pretty sure I mentioned to him at the end, I was pleasantly surprised um, by the, the the philosophy and, and the ethos that he came with because a lot of what he said really resonated with me and is, is kind of, I guess, principles that I've always tried to uh, live by when it comes to working and thinking about work that I do and everything else. So... I, I was um, I was actually very glad to see that he he, he shared that philosophy and, and it's something that he's pushing out and has successfully kind of worked with um, companies, brands, delivered seminars globally, given TED Talks um, about Baraka culture um, and everything kind of surrounding it. So that's really, really awesome. Um, that's, that's pretty much it, I guess, for this week's podcast. We will be back next week, inshallah, with another podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. Uh, and also consider supporting the Muslim Vibe the link is in the description to this episode Um, and yeah we'll be back next week as I said take care guys stay safe Salam